Hi, everybody. Welcome to The Asian Americans. Whether it is your first time joining us or your 164th time joining us, thank you, thank you, thank you so much for tuning in. We are so excited to share an amazing interview, a real-life interview that I did with Vivian Tu, your rich BFF, and my rich BFF, and our collective, our rich BFF. Uh, but before we get to the conversation, I want to introduce you to somebody who has been working diligently behind the scenes so that we can get these episodes up and out. Uh, you actually have heard him before because he was our guest a couple years ago, early on in the uh, legacy of our show. And so welcome, producer Patrick, to our show. Hello, Patrick. Hey, Jerry. Thanks for having me on the official podcast. Again, the I official- guess I should say. I don't know. It's what's what's the unofficial? Is there an unofficial Dears in American somewhere? I don't know. That's not cool. No, I don't think so. If you hear about an unofficial Dears in Americans, please let us know. Uh, we'd love to talk to them. <laughs> um, so, give us a little bit idea of uh, a quick intro about you and and what work you do here on the show with us. Sure. So, my name is Patrick Armstrong, and I am one of the three co-hosts of the John Chi Show, which is a show about Korean American adoptees and. We talk a lot about that specific lived experience. Um, that's a lot of the work that I do personally. And what I've been doing here behind the scenes on the show is helping out editing some episodes and helping with some of the newsletter uh, workflow and things like that that you've been seeing coming out to your inboxes if you're subscribed to that. So, And if you haven't, go to bit.ly slash DAA newsletter to get yourself signed up for the newsletter. Uh, if you want to listen to Patrick's original episode, it's episode 64, uh, but that was more than two years ago. And so uh, hop on over to our other show, uh, Chan Chi Show, to get a uh, more contemporary version of Patrick and his <laughs> two friends, KJ and Nathan, about all the wonderful things that they have been doing. Um, we're going to roll to Vivian's tape real quick, but what is your favorite part about Vivian's interview that people should get excited for as they continue to listen? Um, I think my favorite part about her interview is the drive and determination that she exudes while recounting her story and talking about what she's done to get to where she is now. I think it was really inspirational uh, and really inspiring for me as someone who is a burgeoning content creator, maybe. So uh, I was really excited to to listen and to take a, an edit to this episode. So I'm excited to share it with the world as well. Awesome. Uh I would just want to give a big shout out to Vivian for being such an amazing friend uh, over the last few months that we've been getting to know each other, always available, always encouraging, always just being an awesome colleague in the business and encourager and mentor in some ways as, as she is uh, far ahead of where I want to get to as well. And, and shout out to her team at Uncommon for facilitating the interview. And again, really, really meaningful uh, one of the very few in real life person interviews that we've done. And so shout out to the Canal Street Market, the team at Canal Street Radio, the listening party uh, in New York City uh, for allowing us to use their studio to record this. And so without further ado, here is my rich BFF and your rich BFF, Vivian Tu. Welcome to the Asian Americans. We are so excited for a number of exciting things, uh, mainly for my guest today and the fact that we are recording live and in person at Canal Street Radio, at the Listening Party booth. Uh, This is where our friends at the Asian Not Asian and formerly the $6.99 per pound podcast record right here in Chinatown in New York City. And we're in a super cool studio. I feel like I'm an actual radio person because we had headphones and microphones all over the place. And the main reason we're super excited is I am sitting here with your rich BFF, 
and my rich BFF. Vivian too is here joining us live and in person on Dear Asian Americans. Hi, Vivian. Hey, Jerry. Thanks so much for having me. Uh, people can't see you, but you're wearing uh, dollar sign and cent <laughs> sign earrings. Um, yeah, got to stay on brand. As, as you did last night. Let, let's start off with that. Um, we hosted, uh, Justin, Wynn, and I were starting a new thing around the Asian creator economy and Asian creator network. And so we hung out with a bunch of other creators and people in the creator economy. Um, so we hung out last night. I'm a little hungover because we went out after. But um, how'd you, you know, what did you think of the dinner yesterday? I thought the dinner was super inspiring. I think, you know, you, you made a really good comment of when's the last time, aside from a family reunion, that you've been in a room with this many other Asian people? And the answer is not that often. Justin said that, but I'm going to take credit oh, for it. Yeah, sorry, Justin. He's here in the room. <laughs> <laughs> um, and I, I really love the fact that we were able to sit, talk about what we were doing, and it just felt like everyone in the room wanted to be supportive of each other. And to your point, like no one's going to support you like people who feel like relate and look like you and identify with your story. So I really, really enjoyed it. I made a lot of new friends, um, met some old faces, uh, saw some new ones and it was, it was a great time. Yeah. You know, I, I think, you know, having built, um, for me and for you, having built our brands, uh, in media and in the creator space, mostly through the pandemic and not being able to have a meal or record like this in person. And then now that we're getting to, I think it's for me being able to expand on that friendship, evolve on these friendships and to start to build actual community. Um, because I think when we share these shows here on, you know, on the podcast or even just, you know, even on a panel or just casually, we miss that. And I yeah. think there's a lot of things, you know, like you said yesterday and, you know, a lot of other folks who came yesterday said the same thing. Like there's stuff that you can only talk about, be like, but you can't, it's, it's odd to send a text about it. Yep. It's odd to email about it. Yep. And it really revolves around continuing the friendship, right? And so yeah. things like, hey, hey, I'm going to be in LA next week. What are you doing? It's a very literal eight second conversation that can set something up. But you can't just randomly text somebody and be like, is there any chance you're going to be in LA next week? It's just weird, I guess, you know, depending on, you know, what the level of friendships are. Um, but I think for folks who know your content, uh, you're Rich BFF, you are a finance Wall Street girly. Uh, what, what is the actual slogan? So I don't, I don't goof it up. I'm your rich BFF and your favorite Wall Street girly. Awesome. So, you know, we're going to find out how all that happened, but I want to roll back a little bit. So you obviously made a stop on Wall Street. You were in tech sales and now you are your own boss and you're creating your own brand. And there's all these things that we're going to learn about that you're doing now and the things that you want to do. How did that Vivian come about? Tell us about the two family origin story to America. Where did you grow up and how did that yeah. influence the way you see yourself? Yeah, my parents are Chinese immigrants. They came over to the U.S. in their early 20s. Uh, I grew up in the humble state of Maryland, which, by the way— Why is it humble? It's just, like, kind of boring. Oh, it was, like, actual humble. I thought you were being facetious. No, like, okay. it's, like, there's, like it's not that special. <laughs> um, uh, it's almost D.C., but it's not. Uh, but, you know, it, it's—I grew up in a humble Chinese home. My parents were super loving, but there weren't— that many extra dollars floating around. So there was always this huge emphasis placed on saving, 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 saving. And I remember the biggest fight I ever got into with my mom was over a pair of like stupid $25, $35 Abercrombie and Fitch jeans with holes in them. And she lost her mind when I bought them because she felt like it was such an irresponsible purchase. Mm. Uh, and there's this Chinese phrase that directly translates to 
money needs to be used on the knife's edge. And it essentially just means like only spend when absolutely necessary. And for me, that is my financial education up until I'm 18. I'm a strong student. I go to the University of Chicago. Uh, I'm learning, I'm learning. And by junior year, I have to kind of pick a career. And I thought, well, everybody around me is going on to Wall Street or into consulting. Like, I don't really know what I want to do with my life, but it feels like a good direction. Mm. It's something that I think my parents would be proud of. It would make sense with the school I went to because UChicago has such a strong economics program. And I ended up starting my first job at JP Morgan trading equities uh, in their New York office. I did that for about two and a half years before pivoting over to tech and media sales. And from there, I blended my two careers, both of my personal finance and finance passion, but also working at BuzzFeed, I was a social media maven, you know, like I think you just pick up certain things when you're working in a place like BuzzFeed and they have such a strong social presence. So I blend the social media expertise that I'm learning with this personal finance information that I've now acquired. And I create content for my new coworkers. It's really for them because so many of them had come up to me and said, Hey, you came from wall street. Can you rebalance my 401k? Which health insurance plan did you pick? What investments are you buying? And I got asked the same question so many times to the point where I was like, you guys are being annoying. I'm going to start a social media channel and you can direct all your questions there. And I didn't think that anybody but them would actually want to listen to what I had to say, but I launched my first video on TikTok. And by the end of the week, I have a hundred thousand followers and a little bit of a panic attack because I didn't know how I was going to keep creating content. I mean, and, and now um, we're, middle of August. Mm -hmm. um, how long ago was that? And where are you now in terms of uh, disclaimer, vanity metrics are not the goal. They are a representation <laughs> of the impre the work and the impact that you're having, but they're important measures for your growth and for your sponsors, obviously. So give us a little bit of, you know, where are you from a numbers perspective of, and how long ago did you start? Yeah. So I started, my first video went live January 1st of 2021. So it's been about a year and eight, a year and seven months. Mm. Um, I currently have 1.8 million followers on TikTok, almost 700,000 followers on Instagram, almost 40,000 followers on YouTube. So it's grown quite quickly. And we're also building out our presence on Facebook, Snapchat, Pinterest, and Twitter. I'm curious to learn about Pinterest. We'll, we'll get back to it. But mm -hmm. you, you said your um, financial education was what your parents had told you, which I think many of our listeners can resonate with yep. because what our parents had to deal with was multidimensional adaptation. I don't want to Survival. say assimilation, right? But it was Asian mindset, intergenerational change, and the whole economic system was different. Um, what, and you said the financial education changed when you were 18. What was that change like? And, and were there, you know, I, I think the stereotypical thing is, you know, you go to college and then you meet, you know, non-Asian friends, you know, generally white kids whose parents have been in the country and know the system and the language doesn't, you know, you're being introduced to things that are new to you. Yeah. You're like, I didn't know about that. And it was that, like, how was that introduction into recognizing that the mindset and the knowledge about money was different for us? Not in a bad way. No, no shame to our parents. They did the best that they could and look at what's, you know, what we've made of their sacrifice. But what was that transition like where you were like, okay, I need to think about money in a different way. 
So it's so interesting that you mentioned that because I actually grew up in a predominantly white neighborhood mm. and it felt very isolating at times. Uh, I was the kid who had the weird smelly lunch and I was the girl who whose parents like, you know, drove the Asian branded cars when everybody else's parents were driving Mercedes and Lex, like, you know, like different brands. And for me, going to college was the first glimpse outside of this world that I had known. I thought, you know, this is the life, like buying a single family home in the suburbs of Maryland, like pretty good, pretty good. And going to college was the first time that I had met kids from all over the country, all different walks of life. But it also showed me that there's insane wealth out there that like I had I had just not been exposed to. Mm. And it wasn't until I turned, I want to say 2021, when I was interning on Wall Street, where I really saw like crazy, crazy money. And for me, I was so fortunate when I arrived to JP Morgan, there were about 30 to 40 traders and sales traders. Every single one was a old white man with the exception of one outlier, was a half Taiwanese, half Chinese immigrant woman. She was first gen, just like me. And she took me under her wing. She ended up being my first manager, was the first person who asked me if I had a 401k, didn't. First person to ask me if I was using like the hotel benefits of our company, wasn't. And for the first time, I saw someone that looked like me dressed like me, talked like me, who had crazy money. And it was inspirational because at first for very shallow reasons, she would come into work with a new pair of Gucci shoes and a new Chanel bag every day. And I was like, I want to be <laughs> new Gucci shoes, new Chanel bag every day. But over time it became almost like a blueprint. Like if I work hard, if I do all the right things, I can become like that. I can have financial stability. I can buy whatever I want. I can take care of myself. And that was the goal. Going into an organization like that, um, and I don't know if the diversity has improved. The stereotypes are not so, I don't know, I'm not optimistic about it. But, you know, um, and I think, you know, in, in similar spaces, you witness that, right? Like, you know, when I would do recruiting for consulting or whatever coming out of business school, it's like, do I see myself at the top? Are the people who are interviewing me or the recruiters do they understand my unique experiences, what I can bring? Or like so many companies do, are they just going to whip out a rubric that they're going to judge all of us on? And very akin to the old saying of you can't judge a fish for its ability to climb a tree. Mm -hmm. Like we come from different backgrounds. We value different things. So tell us about that experience of your belief that you could be successful in a setting. And, and maybe I'll, I'll just let you tell the whole story without, you know, putting words in your mouth. You know, what made you want to be successful there? Because this manager that you... Um, you know, were inspired by. You didn't get to meet her until you went into the organization, mm -hmm. right? So um, what gave you the belief that you could see yourself as a successful Wall Street person when, again, a lot of the themes that we talk about when it, when it comes to traditional corporate uh, environments are that we don't see ourselves. And certainly the people that they bring out to recruiting events and the people that they have you interview with, they don't, generally speaking, and again, I, I hope it's better and it always gets better, but there's really not a lot of people who look like us in that process. Yeah. So I will say that a lot of Wall Street banks are doing a, as best as they can of a job to hire diverse candidates and diverse talent. The problem that I find is that once you get in there, the support for that diverse talent isn't robust enough yet. And 
So that's when you look at the C-suite and you're like, everybody here is white. And you look at upper management and you're like, well, everybody here is a guy. And it, it is very clear. You, f- you can feel it in the room when you're in a big meeting room. It's very clear because you're probably a foot shorter than everybody else in my case. Um, but I operated a little bit off of blind faith. And maybe it was naive of me to think that I was going to be successful. But I had always had this mentality that I was never going to be outworked by the guy sitting next to me. And I thought that if I put my nose to the grindstone, I was always going to come out on top. And that blind faith has brought me a lot of success over the years. And as silly as it is, seeing my mentor be successful was the really driving force behind me feeling like someone like me can do it big. And it's so funny because she's like five foot two, this small woman, and when she would get on the phone on the floor, it would strike fear into all of these six foot two guys like hearts. And it was so funny how she could command the room. And for me, that was a depiction of what I wanted to be. I wanted to be small, but mighty. And I wanted people to respect me. And when they saw my name come across their, you know, Bloomberg terminals, they knew that they had to read what I had to say. How do you think she felt? Did you guys ever talk about the way that she saw you and were you one of the first people that she got to coach, mentor, manage, bring up? Because if she's the only one, that means there are people who don't look like her above her, next to her, but certainly the people that she had to lead. Uh, You know, uh, fascinated to hear if you guys had open conversations, maybe after you left or even during, like, what does this mean for somebody like her who, you know, uh, had to do it on her own or didn't have that support system? She truly is one of the most strong people I've ever met. And she has had other mentees before me. However, I'd like to think that I was probably one of the first that she really saw herself in this, this girl that doesn't fit that demure Asian girl mold. I'm loud. I'm boisterous. I'm obnoxious. And she's very strong willed, hard headed, stubborn. And I'm that way too. And I think the reason why we got along so well and why she's still my mentor to this day. Like I had, I had dinner with her two nights ago. Mm. Uh, She and I just, I have a lot of traits that she does. And I think that she valued being able to offer the advice that she never got. You took my next question. You told me you saw her. What did she think about the business that you've built? She loves it. She is one of my biggest supporters. She likes all of my content from her her dog's Instagram. It's Ooh, so the fun. burner account, the burner account. Um, and she's been nothing but supportive. And she, she's now a lot more candid about her opinions of how the organization was when I left. And she's always supportive. She said, you made the right decision. I'm so proud of you and has never made me feel anything but support. And I I hate to say this, but there are things that I feel like I can tell her that I can't even tell my biological mom Mm. because she's just going to get it. She is that gap between my mom and my generation and certain things that I can't tell my mom, I'll call her because I know she'll give me that good, I like to say adult perspective, even though I am now technically an adult, terrifyingly enough, but she also has that more modern approach, that first gen mentality of 
I was born here. I am entitled to my right to be here and I deserve everything that I've earned. You took a path that was extremely traditional, mm-hmm. going to Chicago, Wall Street, yep. um, exiting to tech and then starting this. How did you see that as a benefit? Obviously, when you can, as a part of your brand saying like, look, I used to be a Wall Street person. I have credibility. I used to work at BuzzFeed, gives me more credibility. Therefore, listen to me versus, you know, somebody who doesn't have that. And I think, you know, as creators, we live in this interesting world where traditional paper resume things are validating to a certain degree, but then some people don't care. Like, how do you view the traditional logos on your resume to to visualize its impact on the work that you do, both from a credibility, knowledge, and, you know, how do you think it would have been different had you just gone straight into it? So, although, like, my traditional career path was fraught with adversity, challenges, I wouldn't really trade it. Um, Like last night, uh, I was sitting with Kevin, who's the founder of Lunar, the Asian-flavored hard seltzer. Everybody go drink Lunar. Uh, Drinklunar.com. (laughs) Drinklunar.com. Kevin actually used to be an investment banker. And I think... And your junior high school friend we found and my answer. Yes, and and we used to play volleyball together back in the day. Uh, but essentially, I think a lot of us take these traditional paths because they're, quote unquote, Asian parent approved. And are we super fulfilled, super happy there? Maybe not. But I do feel really thankful because I think a job like that really teaches people like Kevin and myself hustle. I was getting up at 5 a.m. every single day and in the office by 5.45. I didn't leave until 7, 7.30. I'm working a 12-hour day, a 14-hour day. And then on top of that, probably have client events after the, after the fact. And I have then been able to transition that, you know, 12-hour workday, 14-hour workday mentality over to my tech job, which is why I was so successful there. I then pivoted that mentality over to my current business. And especially now that I'm the business owner, I rarely turn off. I'm able to be constantly thinking about the next thing and I'm never satisfied. And it gives me that drive and that hunger, which I got by cutting my teeth on the street in the same way that I don't think Kevin's out there doing financial models on how well his brand's doing, but I do think it fuels him because he used to have to work 120 hour work weeks. And maybe he's not doing that now, but it gives you that fuel and it teaches you that that stamina and that work ethic. It's, it's a question that I get a lot, especially from young folks, you know, um, on LinkedIn and other places where it's like, hey, do I go down the traditional path first and then do something that I'm yeah. passionate about? And I, I would say that from an opportunity perspective, it's never, there's never been a better time than now to jump into the thing that you want to do. Yeah. Um, but I think about, can you do A then B versus B then A? And then think about what's easier, right? Like, can you go create a, you know, can you do, let's say you really want to do consulting. Don't do it. But let's say you really want to do it, right? <laughs> like, it's easiest to get into it right out of school and then just say, hey, I did it. I did it for two years and then go do something, you know, start a company. Or, you know, do you start that company, you know, take a lot of creative risk and then go backwards. I think it's interesting because that optionality exists today that wasn't necessarily there for us. Well, even better, what about the A and B at the same damn time? Because for the pandemic, we've seen the rise of the side hustle. Like I built Your Rich BFF while fully employed at a W-2 job because I liked having the security of knowing that I was going to be able to make my rent payment 
But also, you know, there's never been a better time to do something on your own. You have your weekends, you have your evenings. And especially for a lot of us who are still working from home, you are really cutting off that commute time. And so you now have an extra two hours in the day. What are you doing with those two hours that's going to make you happier in 12 months, make you happier in five years, 10 years? I agree. And, you know, when we, um, you know, when when we talk to creator friends too, that I think are known primarily for their content, but then when you look behind their resume, they're like, oh, they used to be a banker. They used to be a Mm -hmm. consultant. They used to be a lawyer. And I think, like you said, one, there's a credibility factor. Uh, Two, it helps on the business side of things, open more doors because they can see. So like, you know, when I go to, when I pitch myself for speaking gigs, I don't know who my competition is, but in a world where I have competitors or they're comparing people, they're like, oh, he went to business school, he did consulting, so he understands a little bit about our corporate culture than somebody who never worked in that space. In creator world, it's as you're negotiating, as you're you know, thinking about who to partner with or what speaking gigs to line up, that also helps because they understand that you're, it's not the direct output of your content, but it is infused with the context of having that experience. And there are people who find you a lot more credible because mm-hmm. of those things. And so I, I, I think, you know, the pivot for you uh, has been really, really interesting. Let's talk about January 1st, 2021, because that is, you know, I mean, that's like the best, you know, New Year's resolution story yep. turned into this <laughs> wild, wild, life-changing thing. Um, how long did you toil before you pressed upload? And what was that process like? No, I literally filmed it in one take and I pressed upload. It took me like 10 minutes. But but that wasn't the first day that was that the first day you're like, oh, I should create content or no. So it's been something that my friends have been being annoying about for a long time. And wow, do am I thankful that they have been annoying about it? Like I wouldn't have this without them. Uh, but basically I was like, oh, I'll do it. I'll do it. I'll do it later. And then the holidays came and then I didn't do it. And then I was like, all right, perfect timing. New Year's resolution. It'll be my New Year's resolution to like upload one video a week. Jokes on me. Uh, I upload my first video and suddenly I'm uploading a video every single day. And that's what, that's the cadence I've been at since January 1st of 2021 is a video a day. What was the topic of the first video? Uh, It was also mid pandemic when we were getting stimulus checks and a lot of folks were saying, oh, with your stimulus checks, like you should YOLO it into Bitcoin or into Tesla calls. And I was just like, no, like, don't do that. And I basically called that out and I was like, I'm seeing a lot of bad behavior and a lot of bad advice going around on social media. Don't do that. I am, you know, an ex Wall Street trader, a tech sales partner. Like I actually understand wealth. I don't have a get rich quick scheme, but if you want to learn how to be better with your money, I can help you follow me. And that was just the simple video. And two and a half million people saw it. Uh, first of all, congrats. And obviously it's led into all of this and uh, becoming friends with you and then seeing your growth uh, has been amazing. A lot of those people who said YOLO into Bitcoin, do the Tesla stuff. What was what? GameStop to, or GameStop? That was like a few months before the GameStop so like AMC stuff. all these stuff. sort of, yes. you know. Um, the hype traders, the, the meme stuff. The meme stock traders. Uh, folks who peddle those, quote unquote, giant air quotes of advice also don't look like you. No. How much of your resonance do you think was refreshing or being well received by a woman, by Asian folks, by other people 100%. of color? Because many of the financial voices in TikTok world are, dare I say, the children of the people who used to work oh, at JP Morgan. Oh my gosh. 
I don't even think it's the children of the people who worked at J.P. Morgan. I would hope that they would know better. But <laughs> it's it's always some 15-year-old troll who lives in their mom and dad's basement. On, like, I don't even know how, like, are they making comments from their Xbox? Like, how are they doing that? And it's so crazy to me that people will take some random teenager who doesn't even know, you know, his front from his back. Can't legally buy anything. Yeah, yeah. Literally is trading in a custodial account. Like, it's crazy to me. And then for me, I love that I've lovingly dubbed my audience the leftovers. Uh, financial services has historically only catered to old, rich, white men. And if you didn't fall in that category, you were hung out to dry. And I think suddenly for people to see someone who looks like me, who is young, who is a woman, who is a person of color, and someone who talks and acts and walks like they could be anybody's best friend from college. I'm not stiff. Like, listen, I'll make jokes. I'll drop an F-bomb here and there. But I look like I could be anybody's best friend. I don't look like the suits on TV that are so inaccessible that many people do not have in their lives. And I think my audience is primarily women, people of color, the LGBTQ community, marginalized groups like low-income young people. And that I am the person that they're turning to because they've never, ever had financial information come from someone who didn't look like they were already an old, rich white man. What were the comments like in that first video? I would say like 95% supportive questions, really eager to learn people asking about their specific scenarios and like what I should, what they should be doing. But you know, for me, I am an Asian woman and I get, do you eat bat comments? I get, you know, what does this girl think she knows about this? Like a girl just started reading the wall street journal this morning and blah, blah. And it's so funny because I don't know if you've seen some of my roast videos, but I turn those hate comments around and it makes me laugh because I know I don't look like what you picture when you think a Wall Street trader. I know I don't look like Jordan Belfort. I know I don't look like Leo DiCaprio in Wolf of Wall Street. I know that, but I'm just as smart. I'm just as accomplished and I do have that pedigree. So when people underestimate me, I take it as a blessing. I take it as a challenge. It gives me an opportunity to find my audience who is going to be excited that I don't look like that. It's really, you know, we, we talk about, you know, market sizing and audience and, you know, a yeah. lot in, in amongst creator friends. And the, the comical thing that those folks don't realize is that they think that they are more relatable to the greater market, but they actually don't realize that. They're the minority. You, exactly. If you count women, if you count people of color, Hell, if you look at this globally, Asian people are more than half the world. Like, why are you, like, why do you think that we're not relatable, right? right. And it's it's really fascinating, um, you know, as we, I don't know, in, in the traditional world of publishing and of media, like, you know, can an Asian face succeed in this? You know, like, we were taught to watch family, uh, what is it, um, Full House and yeah. Friends and yeah. How I Met Your Mother and all white cast and say, Hey, that's life in America. You should relate to that. But then a show like, you know, um, Fresh Off the Boat comes out and it's like, ooh, that's an Asian story. Yeah. And that's, you know, our target demographic for that show should be Asian Americans. And it's really interesting, right? And I think for for content, when you can take away that middleman and go directly to the consumer and let the market decide and let your fans decide how popular you can be and um, if your stuff is good, because 
if your stuff isn't good, you don't grow to 1.8 and 700,000 mm -hmm. and all these other metrics. Um, January 1st, 2021, your video goes off. Uh, you waited patiently for about a year until you made it your full time. Um, yeah, like a year and three months. I, I left my job like end of March this year. Okay, so it's very recent. Mm -hmm. How did you, let's talk about two things. How did you balance the time management of doing both when the, and, and how much of an itch was it to jump off and then tell us when you felt it was the right time, especially given you, you talk about finances, you know, were you planning? Was it the right moment? So the balancing piece, I balanced not well. I was mentally unwell. I was so, so burnt out. I was working what, like a nine to six, nine to seven, every single Monday through Friday with my day job. And then I would write seven pieces worth of content on Saturdays and film all seven on Sunday. And it was brutal. I did that for a year and three months, but I never, I actually didn't really start thinking about leaving until early 2022 because I know that we've all seen the YouTube videos of like why I left Buzzfeed, but like I didn't have that experience. I had a really amazing manager. I had a really great gig I was given a lot of responsibility. I was compensated very fairly. And for me, it wasn't even about the money. Like, I just liked my job. I liked having that security. I liked having coworkers. I liked having that infrastructure. And it wasn't until I realized that I was getting once-in-a-lifetime opportunities that I was having to turn down, whether that be host my own podcast or write my own book I just didn't have the bandwidth to do it because I was already booked seven days a week. And I was like, well, in 15 years, 20 years, 25 years, am I going to look back on this moment and really, really regret not taking the leap of faith? And I think the answer for me was yes. I think had I stayed in my career, I could have made a ton of money. I would have had a very lucrative career, lived incredibly comfortably, but I never would have known the what if. And I did my best. I was really, really stowing away cash, to be honest with you. And I waited until I had an additional sinking fund of $100,000. And I said, this is going to help me afloat for the next year in case this doesn't work. And when I had that, I quit my job. But you didn't have to use that money. No, it turned out great. I'm, I'm so happy. <laughs> that was the best decision ever. I've you know, built a very, very successful and very lucrative business. Yeah. Uh, and, you know, I look back and I'm like, I'm so glad I was so risk averse and took so long because it really made me realize how badly I wanted to do this. But I think there was, you got rewarded for patience in a way, right? Because yeah. you did not make yourself available to full-time opportunities. Um, but then you had leverage because Correct. you had a following and people yeah. wanted to work with you. And I think, you know, every creator takes a different journey. And I think, you know, for folks, they needed to do it full time. They need the flexibility in their schedule, um, all those things. Tell me about what's transpired in the last five months that even has surprised you in terms of maybe your growth or the, you know, the things that partners that you've gotten to work with. You now have a team um, that, you know, vets your opportunities and um, follows up. Jerry loves my team, by the way, guys. Follows up very, very uh, diligently on when we're actually <laughs> going to do this recording. Uh, shout out to our friends at Uncommon. Um Tell us about that. Like what, what's life been like? Cause I think people see you, um, you, I mean, obviously people see what you want them, 
what you allow them to see, which is a video a day and, you know, some behind the scenes stuff through your Instagram stories. But I don't think very many people understand that the day to day of a full time creator and, you know, some of the business things of management of team. Um, give us a glimpse into that life. Yeah. So I thought I knew there was all there was to know in media because I'd worked at BuzzFeed and I thought I was, you know, un, I was there was nothing I could learn. That is so embarrassingly false. Uh, I don't know anything. I am stupid. And when I became a full time creator, it was a very, very rude awakening that I wasn't going to have structure. I was going to have to give that to myself. And on top of that, I am always one of those people who has a hard time delegating because I'm like, can anyone do this better than me? And I will say getting a team has been the smartest decision of my career. So for me, first and foremost, you know, I'm not an attorney. I got a lawyer and she reads all my contracts. Thank God I'm not reading 30 page documents. She tells me it's safe to sign. She's redlined it. She's, you know, given all the changes. I'll sign it. Great. I trust her. She has my best interests in mind and legally so has to. On top of that, after I got my attorney, she recommended a great management team. And now I have Rana, Alexa, and Kristen at Uncommon, who's my management team. They are, they are truly like my backbone. Like they are keeping me organized. They are helping me with my campaigns. They are the ones setting up my meetings. They are making sure that I'm in the right place for the right opportunities. And I was working with them and having a really great experience. But I was coming to the realization that I wanted to expand the business more. And if I wanted to do that, I wasn't going to be on the receiving end of inbounds. I had to go out and hunt for my own stuff. And so I worked with my management team to set up a bunch of speed dates with agencies. And I ended up signing with WME. And now my agent and my whole team of agents at WME are helping me build out my business in a super sustainable way with multiple lines of businesses, whether that be my digital offering a book, podcast, hopefully streaming TV in two to three years and speaking. And there's just so much to it. I really thought I was like, I'm going to make videos on the internet for a living. It's like, that's not what I do anymore. Like I'm running a business and it's, it's tough. Like I built my company into an LLC. I designated as an S corp. I got a good accountant. Like there's so many, I had to sign up a, a set up a bookkeeper. Someone handles payroll. Like I never thought about all these things. I thought it was like, oh, I, I get money. I put it in my pocket. And like for someone who has a finance background, that was so silly because theoretically I know all these things, but to implement them in my own business was a completely different story. I think that's a fascinating part of the creator economy that we don't talk about enough. Like, so when we talk about, when we talk to our startup founder friends, right? Like you transition from founder to CEO, yep. right? At some point, like I'll text my founder friends about something about their business and then be like, oh, somebody else handles that. Yeah. And I'm like, whoa, cool, like you've grown. And two, like what a great leader. You're not, you know, uh, getting into other people's work. And three, like that must be very interesting as a neutral word, step away from doing the day-to-day -day that you built your business on. We don't talk about that in the creator economy because when you, because they, the audience sees you as the face of it, they hear your voice, but they don't know what it takes for that to be produced, right? Yeah. And so- you know, even like at some point, you still need to be the face of your brand, but you don't do everything, no. right? Like you don't edit your stuff. You don't. There upload. are not enough hours in the day. How, what's your recommendation for somebody maybe a year ago, maybe when you were getting started, that does not have enough volume or enough, uh, you know, is not 
the point they're not big enough to have a lawyer, a team, an agency. Um, how would you have scaled yourself then, knowing what you know now, to help you maybe grow faster or grow more strategically without having a team? Because the team makes a percentage of yeah. you know your business, and therefore, quote unquote, is you know that your your interests are aligned. Yes, if you're 100%. if you're a growing creator and you don't have a lot of income coming in, unfortunately. They're not going to be so eager to take you on mm -hmm. because a percentage of that isn't sustainable for their business. Yep. Um, are there things that you've learned or some things that you wish you would have implemented earlier that don't involve human beings on your team, but that could have, you know, helped you grow? I think I'm really happy with how it played out. I think my timing was really good, not because I'm smart or did it right, but because I got lucky and better lucky than good. Am I right? Uh, I think for me, critical mass or a critical point was when I reached a million followers on any one platform. For me, that feels like critical mass. That's when you should start thinking about, should I have representation in some sort of way? Uh, I also recognize that there were a lot of shortfall, like shortcomings in my business, which is why I took on a team because I would be getting 30 emails a day and responding to two. And by the end of the week, I would have 150 unread emails. And that was giving me anxiety. And I just couldn't get back to people fast enough because I had to also be creating content and working with the existing brand partners. I would say once you make more than $50,000 a year in revenue, I would form an LLC. I would recommend designating potentially as an S-Corp and seeing if you can find a good accountant. This is going to save you so much money. If you don't know what LLC being taxed as an S-Corp is or um, we're not accountants, we can't give you tax advice, ask your tax person. It's, um, it's important. It's take, Well, I'll say I've been told by my person that it is strategically taking better sides of both options. But talk to your, talk to your tax person. Um, what's the coolest thing that's happened outside of money since you started this? Was it somebody you met, something that you were invited to? What was like the wow moment of, holy crap, this is cool. I think it's just seeing people that I was very surprised to have follow me, follow me. So like Lisa Ling follows me on Instagram now and like made a comment about like, wow, this is like such a great video. And I was like, Lisa Ling knows who I am. <laughs> like I exist in her version of this world. And, you know, uh, Kamora Lee Simmons follows me. I'm like, Oh my, like, this is like OG 2000s, like. This is Asian American royalty. Yeah, like that is Asian American royalty. And to have people like that follow me, it makes it very clear to me that I'm doing something right and that my information is valuable to such a large set of people, especially when you think about those two people, right? Yeah. Very, very financially stable in their own lives, very wealthy. To have people like that follow me and still find utility, but also entertainment out of my content is awesome. Well, but I think, you know, especially in, in Lisa's case, like she's a, she has two daughters, right? Yeah. And like she needs role models for her daughters to look up to. Yeah. Um, let's put that into the universe. Uh, next time you come to LA, we'll, we'll find Lisa and we'll hang out. Perfect. Um, what is the dream? What are the things that magic wand question you want to do with the brand? You said TV show, you know, let's say you can make it happen. Yeah. What is what happens between now and Christmas that you put your logo on, that you put your name on? Now and Christmas or, know, like, or like true magic wand? I can't get wand. what I want. Yeah, okay. yeah. 
True Magic Wand is, so I'll back up. The podcast, the book, the TV show, everything, all of that is to help people be better with money, to help everyday person feel better about their finances. And the ultimate goal for me is to be able to provide essentially financial advice without the stipulations of what the current financial advising system exists. So, you know, if somebody walks into a financial advisor's office right now, if you don't have half a million dollars, you're being walked out of that office. You're being laughed out of that office. Even the baby financial advisors who just got their licenses, just graduated college, whatever, like they're probably still looking for you to have six figure net worth. I'm a millionaire now. And I feel very confident about my finances. You know, when I didn't feel confident about my finances, when I had $4 to my name, I was 22, 23, just moved to New York, living in a studio apartment with another roommate, no wall between our beds and like was living paycheck to paycheck, could barely scrape together two pennies to rub together. And I really could have used that information then. And I don't, I didn't have it. I didn't have access to it. And very few young people do. I want to make that accessible to everybody because I don't need it now. I needed it then. I think what you're doing, I I think most creators, we live in this world of the mission, but also realizing the economic opportunity of it. And when did you get okay with talking about both? Like when you just said, I'm a millionaire, that's confident. That's a fact. Um, Culturally, we shy away from talking about money. Mm -hmm. We're almost allergic to talking about money. And especially when it comes to quote unquote, helping people. And to put money around the ecosystem. But also we've existed in a lot of places where without the money, there's no mission. And it's right. hard to do the things, right? If, if we're worried about survival, how do we help other people? Um, talk to us about what you've learned through that process and what advice you'd give. Because when, when I talk to younger creators, that's the struggle, right? Like, I just want to help people. It's like, yeah, but you can't help them as much as you think you can unless you are comfortable and you are well taken care of. And even if you make excess, excess, like, wouldn't you invest that into the community and help other people do the same? Correct. And so, like, it's this cyclical, you know, like, we're not making money so we can go to the moon, <laughs> right? Like some of these other, you know, bazillionaires, like, a lot of the money stays in the community and we help one another grow. And so, like, it's taken me a long time to be completely comfortable talking about money from a positive perspective. Um, but the true value is helping people. And so how do you balance the two, knowing that you've built a brand that is profitable? Well, I think people who do good things and help other people deserve to make money. You know how on a plane they're like, put on your own mask before helping others? You can't, I can't do this full time unless it's a profitable venture because I need to work a full time job and you're just not going to get as much content. You're not going to get as much as many free resources. And that is why I'm always very, very transparent when I take on ad money. But I tell my audience, I only work with partners that I truly believe in. And if you trust me, I'd recommend you take a look at this if it makes sense for you. Making money is not a bad thing. I think we've associated making money as this dirty, grimy, greasy, you know, gross capitalist structure. But money makes the world go round. You cannot build a successful business without raising money. And for me, it feels like talking about money 
and and in fact, the lack thereof is what's holding, in particular, our community back. So I absolutely hate to say this and hate to be the bearer of bad news, but if my white fiance walked into a car dealership right now, he would be treated very, very differently because he is a man and because he's white than if I, an Asian woman, were to walk into a car dealership and try to buy the exact same car. Even though, you know, our finances are blended, both of us are millionaires, we both make very, very good livings, he would get very different treatment than I would. If our community does not talk about money, we are getting nickeled and dimed left and right. You've seen the studies. Black couples, LGBTQ couples are getting worse mortgage rates. Why? For what? And appraisals. And appraisals. Oh, yeah. We've seen the California headline. Um, the Tanisha Tate Austin and her husband, Paul Austin, got an appraisal that was half. And then when they hit all their family photos and had their white friend let the second appraiser in, it got doubled. Like, that does not seem within even slight reason. So I think we need to, especially as people of color and as, you know, quote unquote, minority communities, we need to be talking about money. It helps all of us. What are you paying for your mortgage? Do you have a mortgage broker that is going to give you a fair rate? What did you get charged for, you know, what, what did you get paid for this speaking gig? Tell your friend what you got paid. You're not going to suddenly get paid less, but you have the opportunity to help them make more. And more and more dollars flowing into our community, being spent at our community's businesses, being spent at those brands, being supported as VC funds for our new founders, that is beneficial to all of us. What do your parents make of all of this? So I didn't even tell them about Your Rich BFF until I was eight months in because I knew that they were going to make some comment. But it didn't circulate in the WeChat world? Nobody saw you and sent it to their mom? And Nobody saw it. Oh. I thank God. Um, I think it's obviously because like their WeChat world is like an older demo. Who, well, like, somebody's friends, kids, somebody's at age well, that Vivian. Well, after like a, a few weeks after I told my parents, and thank goodness I told them, a few weeks later, my cousin saw me and was like, is this my cousin? And <laughs> sent it to his mom, who sent it to my mom. And I was like, can you imagine had I not told my mom? And my mom was like, what is this? So... I told them eight months in, I kind of took the advice of Sarah Blakely, founder of Spanx. She like hid her idea for a full year before telling anybody about it. Because when your burgeoning business, your baby is in those stages of potentially making it or not, anybody's cruel words or opinions could potentially bring down your belief in your vision. And I wasn't prepared to have my Chinese immigrant parents who wanted me to have a very traditional life say anything about my new passion. I didn't want their opinion. And when I got to that eight month mark and I was getting really close to having a million followers, I said it very matter of factly. And I was like, I have to tell you guys something. I started posting videos on social media and I've blown up and I'm making money. And I didn't want to tell them until I had made some money because then they would see it as a value. Oh, this can add to your income. It's suddenly valuable versus you just making internet videos. 
I, I hope that, you know, with, with your story and with others, that it also changes the conversation on what a good career looks like. And because, you know, we always say this on the show, like our parents don't want anything but the best things for us. It's just we they do not understand the what the best paradigm. is anymore. Correct. It's changed so quickly. And so uh, they don't know. Therefore, it's feared. And therefore, they're like, well, it sounds risky. Um, as, as we wrap here, um, you know, a couple of questions ago, you gave us an amazing, uh, you know, thought about intra-community investment and the flow of money in and out. Um, the way we end the show is with the Dears Americans letter. Um, you, you've given us so much great insight. And I wonder if there's something that you'd like to tell perhaps a younger version of Vivian or somebody who is inspired by you and literally gaining their confidence and the conviction to start their own creator journey because you've done it. Um, share with us any insight or wisdom or any advice that you might uh, by completing the letter, Dear Asian Americans. Dear Asian Americans, I know it may seem scary, but post that first video. It doesn't have to be good. It doesn't have to be fancy. It doesn't have to be edited. My first video changed my life. And whether you are shy or don't even want to use your own voice, there are so many different ways to create content these days. And digital media, being yourself, being the brand can truly change your life and become your next career. And who knows, maybe one day Vivian will get into your comments and it will freak that person out <laughs> because you're the person that inspired them. And I think that's the wonderful thing that's happened from social media within specifically within our Asian American community. It gives us a chance to access the world, but it's also decreased the size of what is possible and what is feasible within certain groups and members of our community. And it's so weird. Like, you know, it, what, how long did it take Lisa to write that comment? Four seconds? Yeah. But it was meaningful, right? Mm -hmm. And that could spark something where you work on something together or, you know, you develop a friendship with her. Um, um, I'm just putting all this manifestation energy into the Yeah, universe. put it out there. Put it out there. Um, Paul Young, if you're listening, please set this up. Um, <laughs> you know, it's, it's, I think that's the beauty of it. And I think, what we could have only dreamed because we didn't see it or then now that we get to see it is also we're teaching people through our actions and even conversations like this, the actual steps to build the business because you win bigger. If the pie grows, correct. I win bigger if our pie grows and what's the word. I mean, that's the best thing possible. And so, you know, I, I think it's fascinating the, the world is the opportunity. There's 4 billion of us. There's no cap on how many money, how much money you can make, how many followers you can have. And, you know, that equates impact and that equates empowerment. And I think at the end of the day, I know at the end of the day, we've talked a lot about numbers and money and, you know, those things that we have to talk about. But ultimately, we want people to have the belief and the tools to do what they decide is the next step and their legacy. So we weren't afforded that. And so... You know, I, I think it's wonderful that you're doing this. I'm so grateful that you said yes. Shout out to your team for being the best follow people <laughs> I've ever worked with in my life. Um, you know, uh, I'm so happy for you. I am optimistic. Uh, and you dropped something um, earlier, the F word, Beyonce. So congratulations oh, on that. And, and all the wonderful things that are happening in your life. Um, so at Your Rich BFF, um, where does the period go? 
after the your, but honestly, if you just search your rich BFF on any platform, I'll be the first thing that comes up. Okay. Search at your BF, your rich BFF anywhere, everywhere. Um, got a podcast coming out. She's working on book stuff wherever you can. And uh, thanks for being on the show. Thanks for being my friend and helping support our community. Thanks for being. Thanks, Jerry. Thanks again to Vivian for sharing her story with us, uh, her secrets, her tips. Hope you took a lot of notes. If you haven't, I encourage you to go back and listen to it again and uh, pay attention to the parts of her journey where I think there are inflection points and pivots that really help, uh, can help you go down the path. And one one thing that I will share is uh, I am just amazed at how much work goes behind the scenes of a content creator whose content we only see for 30 to 60 seconds at a time per day. But the thoughtfulness that goes into the process, the content, and the marketing behind it, the team that exists behind it to make all of this work, really, really incredible. And then wishing her nothing but the best. And again, a big shout out to her for being a wonderful friend of uh, the show, of me, um, of the Asian creator community that we're building at Always Be Creating. You can learn more about that, particularly at alwaysbecreating.xyz, either on the internet or on Instagram. You can reach out to Vivian at Your Rich BFF. That's at yourrich.bff uh, on Instagram. And, uh, you know, just search yourrichbff on TikTok and wherever she can be found. You can look for me at jerryj1 on Instagram or jerryone.com. And producer Patrick can be found at Patrick in the World on the Instagram. And all three of us, Vivian, Jerry, and Patrick, are very active on LinkedIn. And so head over to my favorite platform and just search our names, and we would love to engage with you there. Uh, thanks again so much for tuning into this amazing episode of the Dearest Americans podcast. And signing off as your host, I am Jerry Wan. Continue to stay healthy, happy, and safe. See you next time.